0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter five, beginning in verse eight. He had taken the book. The four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, Having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song. These precious words have occasioned for us a question. How does God want us to worship him in psalm? This text has raised all kinds of uh, questions in the history of this discussion. So it seemed good to take a few steps back and set the foundation for our discussion of these precious verses. First, we set a foundation of principle without which. These discussions can never be understood. Our principle is known as the regulative principle of worship, popularly phrased. If it has not been commanded by God in worship, then it is forbidden. To express it in Moses' terms, we are to do all that God has commanded with respect to worship, without addition and without subtraction. When it comes to the worship of God, God's desire is paramount in our principal concern. So this is not a question of what do we like, what do we find helpful. The question is really, what is it that God desires from us? And we can be well assured that God's desire will be glorifying to himself And also good for us. Remember our discussions from Colossians chapter 2 that when we hold fast to the head in worship, the nourishment flows down from the head to the body. And so our question has become a bit more narrowly, what has God commanded us with respect to the service of song? And as soon as we ask that question, we find a complex answer. Because what God has required of his people with respect to song has changed from age to age. This ought not to prejudice the doctrine in any sort of way. Some of the ordinances of worship have remained relatively stable and unchanged through redemptive history. You might think of prayer, for example, which seems to have had very little in the way of substantive change from the beginning. Other ordinances have changed quite a lot. You might think of the sacraments. Uh, The service of song is probably a little bit more like the sacraments in this regard than prayer, but probably not as complicated in its history as the sacraments. So this has brought us upon the second part of our study, which is a consideration of the history of the service of song so that we might observe the continuities and changes down through the ages. But ultimately, our goal is to consider what does God require of us with respect to service of song. In your uh, outline, you will see our chart, which we have had before us. We divided that history of the service of song into four general periods. The first period is uh The longest of the four, 2,500 years, almost half of the history of the world, from creation to Moses. If you take Usher's chronology, and I do, you're talking about a creation roughly in the year 4000 B.C. And the Mosaic era beginning roughly at about 1500 B.C. During that time, we are able to say with confidence that there is no evidence that song was used in the worship of God. Something of a negative conclusion, perhaps not fully satisfying, but we could at least say that much for sure, that there is no evidence that song was even used in the worship of God. We could establish some ordinances for that period of time. Preaching, prayer, sacrifice. These things seem to have been instituted from the very beginning by God himself after uh, the fall. But as we looked at the history, we did see that it seems that it was not possible for music to have been used from the beginning because it would be several hundred years, probably the better part of 500 years before the musical science began to develop under the time of Jubal. Uh, and again, if the Cainites are uh, um, reproducing at about the same rate as the Sethites. You're talking about uh, about 500 or so at the beginning of the history of the world, 500 years before the musical science begins to develop. This became a, an observation that prayer, designated calling upon the name of the Lord, was a very ancient thing in the world before we had the development of music. We will have, I think we'll be able to strengthen what we have surmised already, that there was no uh, use of music in this uh, age of the world, actually, as we go forward. So we'll continue to reflect back on this age. But that's where it stands uh, so far. We are uh, currently in the midst of our considerations of that second great age, from Moses to David, roughly 1500 B.C. to 1000 B.C. And here we have just a handful of examples of song being used in the worship of God. But we are able to draw some conclusions that the, uh, these songs were given at the hands of a prophet. The matter of them uh, was inspired by God the service of song such as it was on those occasions uh, was superintended by the prophets but it doesn't appear as if there was any yet uh, yet any regular service of song that seems to have uh, awaited the time of david so there was just a handful of occasional songs those are my propositions we began looking at the evidence And we begin with the Song of the Sea. The year is roughly 1491 B.C. Israel has just passed through the Red Sea and a miraculous deliverance out of Egypt. The Egyptian army has been destroyed in the sea. And from that position of safety on the other shore, Israel erupts into song. We found here in support of the doctrinal propositions concerning this age that the service of song as it was performed there was warranted by God himself through his prophets. The entirety is superintended by Moses. We had opportunity to observe that Moses was the prophet par excellence of the Old Testament administration. We saw that in Numbers chapter 12. It was superintended not only uh, by him, by, but also by Miriam, who is expressly designated a prophetess. God provides the words through the prophetess Miriam. God authorizes the musical instruments. We know at least a uh, timbrel or a tambourine type drum without the jingles or the small cymbals was used. And perhaps also a pipe, if we're to take that pipe instead of uh, dancing. We'll return to that question uh, in future sermons. But this song appears to have been limited to uh, this occasion and not to have been used uh, perpetually in the Church of God. Part of the evidence is negative, and negative evidence is never of a very great quality, There's no evidence that it was used later. But we might observe that there was no vehicle at this time for its ongoing use. As we will see, uh, as uh, the ordinances are established for the tabernacle, God did say to do all that he had commanded without addition and subtraction, but then he gave no vehicle for ongoing service of song in this tabernacle era, which seems to be, conclusive against its ongoing use. In other words, the Levites were not set aside for music. There was no commandment for ongoing use of music in the tabernacle and its worship. So it does not appear that the song of the sea was used in any sort of ongoing way. Last week we considered Psalm 90, titled The Prayer of Moses, The Man of God curious in the Psalter uh, and worthy of some special consideration because it does appear not all of the Psalms are uh, received titles and so it's hard to say with absolute certainty but it does appear to be the oldest Psalm in the Psalter it was an ancient thing before the Psalter ever began to be composed and compiled it was a thing 500 years old or so before the Psalter began to be composed and uh, compiled by David and the Levites. And so it does raise questions about how this ancient uh, bit of poetry made its way into the Psalter. And here, if you will excuse um, a a bit more extended review, I was uh, a bit unhappy with my own presentation. I, I thought I could have been clearer on a couple of points, so let me endeavor to be just a little clearer this much we can say for sure about the 90th Psalm in uh, in support of our general thesis concerning this era the matter of this song was indeed furnished by a prophet and it was inspired matter this is part of a more general thesis that it appears that throughout all of redemptive history all of the matter of song has always been furnished by prophets and inspired so this is just yet another example of that same uh, uh, doctrinal proposition. At this point, this is where I thought I could have been more clear. What can we conclude concerning the usage of this uh, bit of poetry? We can say this with absolute certainty, that it became a part of the regular service of song for all of God's people when it was gathered into the psalter so you're talking roughly the year 900 BC so we can say that much about it once it was gathered into the bosom of the psalter it did become a part of the regular service of song but what can we say from the time of its composition to that time and there drawing any sort of conclusion becomes more difficult we are left in uncertainty about its usage when it was first composed. There are a couple of options. It is possible that it was originally composed simply as a prayer by Moses, preserved by the people of God, and then eventually included in the Psalter. That's possible. As we go forward in redemptive history, we will see that there is another possibility. It is possible that Moses, as the prophet of God, sang this, if you will, as a prophetic solo at some point. And that was its usage. And then it lay uh, dormant, as it were, until later included in the Psalter. It is also possible that it was a prophetic song, but the people of God were included for that single occasion of its use, very much like the Song of the Sea, which we have already seen. These are all possibilities, but... um, We can't be sure how it was used. And so we can't derive any doctrine or any practice. We simply must leave that question in uncertainty. We can uh, derive, however, again, a a strong conclusion about the intervening time. It was very unlikely that it was used between the time of its composition to its inclusion in the Psalter. Because once again, there was no regular service of song for the tabernacle, no vehicle for its ongoing use. So with this, we move on to one other bit of evidence. I thought that I would clear this up in no time, this short little reference to a song, and then I found it so full of life and interest that I was unable to hurry by it. Next week, we will look at... um, Moses swan song, if you will, at the end of Deuteronomy and its considerations, and then we'll be ready to move on or advance in this period, move on towards David. But before we do, we have what is called the song of the well. You are now, uh, if the song of the sea was given at the beginning of the wilderness wandering and uh, 1491. Here you are at the end of the wilderness wandering, probably roughly the year 1452. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Numbers. And as we look at our text in Numbers 21, not that. For our purposes, any of this is of great importance. But I have included a, a map in your outline. On the back side of your outline. So you can have some sense of the relative geography. We get reference to a song in the midst of Israel's final movements, that final track. As they circled around the southern and then the eastern border of Edom. And begin to head towards um, uh, what we might call just east of Jordan. If you look at your map, they will go along the eastern side of uh, Moab. And just north of Arnon, they will make an approach to the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. In this area, they are going to encounter the Amorites and win famous victories over Sihon and Og. And take the, uh, what will later be called the Transjordanian Inheritance, which extends all the way from Arnon, and you see there the river Arnon, all the way up to the Sea of Galilee, which is not included on this map. Uh, up there in the northwestern corner of the map, you see Jericho and the f- first, uh, or we should say the end of the Jordan River. They would cross the Jordan River uh, in about a year's time and uh, the siege Jericho. But we're in that final movement and I thought it might be helpful so that we weren't uh, simply reading words that are meaningless. The book of Numbers chapter 21 beginning in verse 10 And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in Abob and they journeyed from Abob and pitched at Abari in the wilderness which is before Moab Toward the sun rising. And you notice that Ijabari. uh, At least it's speculated location. Is given there as well as the brook Zeret. From thence they removed and pitched in the valley of Zeret. And from thence they removed and pitched on the other side of Arnon. Which is in the wilderness that cometh out of the coasts of the Amorite. For Arnon is the border of Moab Between Moab And the Amorites Wherefore it is said In the book of the wars of the Lord What he did in the Red Sea And in the brooks of Arnon And at the stream Of the brooks that goeth down to the dwelling Of Ar and lieth upon The border of Moab And from thence they Went to Beir That is the well whereof the Lord spake unto Moses Gather the people together, and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song. Spring up, O well, sing ye unto it. The princes digged the well. The nobles of the people digged it. By the direction of the lawgiver with their staves. And from the wilderness they went to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nahaliel, and from Nahaliel to Bama. And from Balmoth in the valley, that is, in the country of Moab, to the top of Pisgah, which looketh toward Jeshima. This provides the the context. We are in that last and final motion as they make their approach to uh, the promised land and their first uh, warfare uh, for the sake of the promised land. I was surprised um, at the difficulty of this little text and how... Subject it was to a great many possible interpretations. For our purposes, we're looking at uh, verses 16 and 17 in particular. It, we are told that they arrive at a place called Ba'ir, which means well. You see the play of words. And from thence they went to Bair, that is the well, that is the Ba'ir, whereof the Lord spake unto Moses. God then commands Moses to gather the people together and Moses gathers them and then the Lord promises them water. This would seem to suggest that this is a dry place, that they are without water if they were uh, beside convenient waters. It doesn't seem like any of this would be necessary. The Lord wouldn't have to promise them any water. They would already have as it were but um, so this appears to have been a, a dry place i bring that up because this is one of the difficulties in interpretation and apparently in that region north of arnon at least parts of it they do say that um, that water lies so close beneath uh, the ground that you can simply break through the crust of the ground and find uh, uh, water underneath and some have speculated that's perhaps what is done here that uh, Bedouins do it even to the present day. I puzzled and puzzled and puzzled over this possibility and ultimately had to reject it because it seems to make the text worthless, doesn't it? Uh, If water was ready at hand, if they were sitting by the waters of Arnon and water was easy and convenient to get at, uh, they would not need a special promise. And also it seems that this ends up being attached not to... Uh, Water just below the surface, uh, but to a well. Once the place, uh, the discovery of a well that they did not have before. So I had to uh, reject that. This brings us to verse 17. So just remember the context. God commands Moses, gather the people together. Moses gathers them and the Lord has promised them water. And then verse 17, we get a notice The first word is then, at that time. So as they have been gathered, and no doubt as they have been informed of the promise, at that time, Israel sings a song. And the content of the song, at least a little bit of it, is given. Spring up, O well. Those are the only words we're given for the song itself. Spring up, O well. The well is... Uh, is addressed directly so we we clearly have a personification in the the song. They're treating the well like it's a person and they're talking to it. They're bidding it to spring up. This immediately raises another question. Is this a religious song at all? Or is perhaps this a non-religious song? I did read one interpreter who said that Perhaps they're simply encouraging themselves in their work the way that men sometimes do when they are involved in uh, difficult labor. They'll encourage themselves by uh, singing together. And I thought about this and thought about this and thought about this, and ultimately it didn't seem to work very well in the context, because ultimately it doesn't appear that much work is involved. The princes of the people are said to dig with their staffs. If you've ever done any serious digging, you'll know that a staff isn't much good. You would want something more like a shovel. It appears that they simply, uh, and it appears to me in a symbolic fashion, poke and prod at the ground, and then God uh, miraculously provides water for them. We'll we'll talk some more about that. But it didn't seem like just a group of men singing to encourage themselves in their work because it doesn't appear that there was much in the way of work to it. It appears to be a song for worship. A couple of different ways we could understand this. We could understand it as the rough equivalent of a prayer of supplication. They have received the promise that God would provide them water. And now they express their confidence by way of a supplication that God would provide that water by means of a well. And if it is indeed a a supplication in song, then it certainly is worship. Some have said that perhaps it's a prediction or a prophecy. God has promised. And so they repeat the promise and expect the future accomplishment in faith. In this way, it would also appear to be a worship song. Some have said that they seem to be relating uh, a commandment to it in the name of God. He's promised to give them water. And so they as it were, speak to it. Uh, And this also would seem to be something of an act of worship. I say all these seem to fall within the the realm of worship because it appears that their song is an expression of their faith and confidence in God and their joy. Uh, And then you get uh, a mutual exhortation that they appear to speak one to another. Sing ye unto it. So you get the song spring up a oh well, and then words that they appear to have spoken one to another, sing ye unto it. You might remember from our discussion of Miriam's involvement in the song of the sea, there was a little Hebrew verb anah that was used. They're translated and Miriam answered the men. The men, she answered them. And this raised a a question for us whether or not this implies antiphonal song. And remember, as we've been going through this, we've been trying to see what we might be able to learn about the uh, manner of performance of these songs. So we've been looking at some detail. In Exodus 15, although it was hard to draw a certain conclusion, it did appear, based on the general structure of the text, that it was some kind of antiphonal singing. That the men sang and that the women answered them in some, in some way. And remember, anah in its first and primary definition does mean to answer. And then the question means, does it mean to answer or to sing antiphonally here, as it appears to mean in Exodus 15? We also saw that anah can simply just mean to sing. And that creates the difficulty. What is happening here? Here we have less evidence for determining the question with confidence, but it seems to me that it simply means sing ye rather than answer, sing antiphonally. The reason I say that is because they're being told to sing to the well, sing ye to it. in feminine termination, sing to it, sing to the well. Uh, It would seem strange to say answer to the well. And you see why the King James translators have translated it, Answer with Miriam and Sing here. It would seem to imply that the well was singing first and then they were answering back to the well, which would seem to be nonsense. Uh, So, again, we can't determine that question with any great confidence, but it does seem to be a sound translation on the part of our translators to simply render it, Sing ye here. Finally, verse 18 is very important and significant for our considerations, particularly as it applies to doctrine. We are told that the princes and nobles of the people dig this well. And then we are told that they do it by the direction of the lawgiver with their staves. So, two little expressions. By the direction of the lawgiver, one and with their staves too i want to start with the simpler of the two which is the second with their staves as i mentioned this would not these would not be good digging instruments it seems to imply with they with not just with their walking staffs but with a staff a symbol of authority the symbol of their princely dignity it, it seems strange that they would dig with these things and that's why I say it appears to me on balance that this is a symbolic action. This ought not to surprise us at this point. You remember that Moses, in a similar manner, uh, brought water from the rock by uh, speaking to the rock and striking the rock. It's not an uh, altogether different procedure here. They sing to the well and then, uh, as it were, strike the ground with their staves when they're... With these emblems of authority. And then the water comes from God. Other interpreters have looked at it. And said that these signs of authority. Might very well. This also might be a symbolic digging. With an implicit command to others. Their subordinates to actually dig. So in other words. uh, We we do things like this. Where perhaps a mayor on a building project. Will go out. And he'll turn over the first layer of dirt. And there's an implicit. Implicit. Uh, commencement of the real work. He's not doing the real work. He does sort of a symbolic action, and then the rest of the real workers come in and actually do the job. So the participation of the princes here appears to be symbolic. Uh, And again, not altogether different than what Moses did once upon a time in bringing water from the rock. The real difficulty or puzzle here comes with that little expression, by the direction of the lawgiver. You notice in your King James translation, the words, the direction of, are in italics. That's because they are not there in the Hebrew. It's quite literally something like, by the lawgiver, with their stays. In Hebrew, it's all one word, the hocate. And it can actually be translated in two different ways. It can be translated by the word staff, by the staff, or by the lawgiver. Uh, You might see why this is. Uh, This word uh, is a Poel participle of of a Hebrew root, a cock To inscribe or decree. You can probably right away see a relationship either to one giving a decree or to any sort of emblem of authority. Uh, It can be associated with the staff, which would be an emblem of authority or the one who bears it. The lawgiver himself. And so this gives us two different possible interpretations here. Some have taken this to be a commander's staff. And the translation in this case would be something like this. The princes dig the well. The nobles of the people digged it with the chief commander's staff with their staves. We have a, some of you might remember our sermons from Genesis 49, verse 10, where we had a similar thing. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver, the whole a lawgiver, from between his feet. And we, we talked about how there I do think it ought to properly be translated staff the staff from between his feet although in in, on balance it doesn't amount to a complete difference the um, the emblem of authority of the one bearing the emblem doesn't amount to a complete difference this could also uh, be translated by the lawgiver in which case it would be rendered something like this the princess dig the well The nobles of the people digged it by the lawgiver, in our version, by the direction of the lawgiver, with their staves. Moses is actually given this express title in another place, the Mahokate, the lawgiver. Let me just read it to you in Deuteronomy 33. He provided the first part, that is the first part of Gad's inheritance, for himself because there in a portion of the lawgiver it's, a, it's a, uh, an expression signifying Moses himself that uh, Moses had assigned this portion himself or this was the only portion of the promised land into which Moses would ever enter so it's called the portion of the lawgiver I puzzled and puzzled and puzzled over the possibilities I, I actually prefer the King James rendering here to uh, an, any alternative but ultimately I said it doesn't matter because uh, it comes to the same thing that Moses leadership in this whole affair is brought immediately into view whether that's through the symbol of his staff or in his very person but either way you take it it has to be taken as one or the other his leadership is brought immediately into view and this is very important for our doctrinal consideration. We can draw some conclusions here. This does appear to be a worship song. I do think we can assert that with a good degree of confidence. They are praising God for what He is about to do. Now, if I might digress here on a, on a bit of application, uh, we use the Psalms and we sing them well when we sing their promises in faith. In ancient times, uh, the people of God would sing the psalms and they were looking forward to the arrival of the Christ who was promised in those psalms. They sang them in faith, looking forward to the future. There are still a great many promises in uh, this altar. Personal promises yet to be fulfilled in the lives of each one of us as individuals. Corporate promises concerning the church and her ultimate destiny. We sing well when we sing the promises in faith, believing that everything that God has promised will be uh, fulfilled. These things will be brought to pass in the life of His church. Uh, Just a couple of small handful of doctrinal theses here. First of all, it does not appear that this song was repeated either. So very much like the Song of the Sea or Psalm 90, until its inclusion in the Psalter, it does not appear that the song was repeated. First of all, I think it to be a very, uh, I'm very skeptical of the idea that it was even written here in full. In other words, it doesn't even appear that the whole song was preserved. Simply a, a small handful of words to give you the matter of the song, but not the song as a whole. And if it's not written in full, it could not have been uh, repeated at any sort of distance of time. Once it passed out of living uh, memory, it would simply be gone. But once again, uh, Israel had been commanded how to worship in their tabernacle. And there wasn't any ongoing vehicle for the repetition of uh, this music. And so it doesn't appear that this was repeated. Second. Once again, the song was under the direction and superintendence of a prophet. Notice here, God commands Moses to gather the people with the promise of water. Moses gathers the people and then he superintends their ceremonial digging. It's done by the direction or at the hand of the lawgiver. And we can draw that conclusion again, no matter how this word is translated, Moses' authority is brought immediately into view, whether in his own person or in some sort of uh, symbol or emblem of his authority. They dig at his direction. And so he both gathers and superintends all of these uh, proceedings. And within the gathering and superintending of all of these proceedings, uh, we no doubt can include the song as well. All of this is done in his direction and under his uh, watchful eye and superintendence. And so we have yet more evidence to support our main doctrinal thesis that all of this was done at the hands of prophets, warranting it uh, as a commandment by God himself to worship God in this way. Uh, next week, as I, I mentioned, Lord willing, we will press on and can. Consider that song at the end of uh, Deuteronomy. There I think we will learn something more about uh, the possibility of religious song outside of worship. I and mean, like, catechetical songs, a very useful thing uh, indeed. And Lord willing, if, if I can uh, stretch our legs a little bit to make some quicker pro- progress through text, we uh, might be able to make our way rather quickly to uh, Samuel and his important contribution to the development of song and the religious life of the people of God. Let us pray together.